What a privilege it is to be with Trevor Archer, the London director of the FIEC, talking with him a little about his experience, his inspirations, his own story. So uh, Trevor, you, uh, you are the London director of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. So London, Trevor, mm. talk to me about London. Well, in terms of um, my own personal history, uh, I'm, I'm a London lad. I was, though I was born in Bournemouth, I spent all my life, bar those first six months, in London. Uh, I've worked and lived in London all my life, pastored in London. Uh, and so this, doing this job is kind of fulfilling a kind of um, very natural heart mm. drawing to London. Yeah, I love yeah. London as a city. I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. In terms of FIC, we have something like 75 churches within the M25 ring. Right. So I'm uh, keen to try and get those churches working together. I'm mm. afraid very often the independent in FIEC, is, which is a theological statement, actually becomes a, a pragmatic, practical description of how those churches operate. Right. Where, though we believe in a fellowship, we mm. believe in interdependency. Mm. And uh, my aim really initially is just to get the leaders together of those churches. We have larger churches, smaller churches. Mm. We've got churches that are thriving, churches that are struggling. But we've got uh, situations where we're kind of scattered around London and we've got the opportunity to work through our, perhaps our larger churches with the smaller ones to, to help one another mm. uh, for the gospel. Right. Not only for one another, actually to work with other evangelical groups oh, and who's preaching the gospel so Wonderful. it's about how can we get the gospel out into London yes and you yourself have been a pastor and you therefore and you've been in the FIEC for what 20 years 30 40 years I guess so I think yes probably 30 years or so I was pastor of um, Chesington Evangelical Church which is otherwise known as the King Centre down in the southwest London suburbs when I left school at 16 I trained to be a charter surveyor it was in the days when you didn't go to university uh, really, and um, I ended up as a, a partner in a practice in my mid-30s. I left that um, in order to go into Christian ministry. Mm. Uh, I ended up being called to the church that I got converted in, oh, Chesington. Wow. Oh, so uh, my wife, Val, and I have basically belonged to one church wow. for 50 years yeah. until our recent involvement with the Globe in, in the South me. Bank. So what, when was that that you decided to... Um, to go into ministry at the church in Chessington? I guess it was a gradual thing. Um, it was in, having become a Christian in my late teens, uh, I was very involved uh, in youth ministry, began mm -hmm. being mentored by a guy called Harry Kilbride and then another fellow who was the pastor, Andrew Davis, mm -hmm. started to do a little bit of preaching. But by this time I was um, one of five partners. We had 25, 30 people working for us. So I was running... Uh, a business, but my heart passion was drawn to the gospel, and mm. I, but I loved business. People were saying to me, have you ever considered God might be calling you into ministry? Wow. I hadn't advertised that fact, so mm. that was a kind of confirmation thing. People whose opinion I respected were saying that to me. Wow. And I was kind of jettisoned into church leadership mm. by going to what I call an infamous elders meeting, I was asked to become an elder. I became an elder. There were, there were three other people. We had one elders meeting that I attended. That was the only meeting for the next two years because at that meeting, the pastor said, uh, I'm actually being called to another church in, in South Wales, so I'm leaving. Wow. The, next part, the next elder said, I'm going to head up a, 
a cause for concern, which is a Christian charity aimed at helping uh, people with disability. And the third guy said, I'm standing down because my health has gone. Wow. So I was left as the uh, presiding elder of this church uh, for the next two years till I was joined by a man called John Tyndall. And John and I formed a team ministry, which was fairly revolutionary back in the 1980s, which mm. was kind of in free church circles. No, you had a pastor, you know, all singing, all dancing, did it all kind of thing. And we would say, no, we believe in a plurality of eldership. Right. Uh, and so uh, John very bravely, tenaciously got that through. We formed a team. And over the ensuing years, it was the synergy of actually having two people working together and then the team got added to and the mm. Lord blessed us and the opportunity to develop the King Centre came along, which is a remarkable story of God's provision. Mm. So, But the, the heartbeat of it was actually mission. Um, mm. And I think because of our trips abroad to uh, visit our missionaries and so on, we were seeing Christianity in another culture, which really helps you think through your own culture Mm. and seeing the hurdles and barriers that very often we put into people's way through our traditions, ah. um, which may be good traditions, but actually if they're getting in the way of people hearing the gospel, uh, so in, in those days was it you know, having to dress up in a three-piece suit to go to right. church and that kind of thing. Mm. But actually seeing the way Christianity had been exported from the West and how ill-suited it, it was in many ways to what was going on in, in Africa and in Asia... It made you think, well, actually, what are we doing? So, right, right. Uh, it, so our thinking was very much, let's get rid of the stuff that gets in the way of people hearing the gospel. Wow. Uh, and one of the one of the things from that was that we moved out into meeting into a local community college, and we'd also taken the decision that um, we weren't going to invest in buildings; we we're going to put money into people. Wow. So we wanted to train people and send people. And when we'd come to that conviction, almost that week. I had a call from the man who was the director of development at Kingston Council saying, I hear you, you've been looking for land. Um, uh, I've got an offer to make you, and which was basically there's a development going on. Would you like one acre of a two-acre site? And on that one acre, you can build a church. On the other acre, they're going to build a sports centre. We went back and said, uh, no, thank you. That wouldn't be big enough. Could we take the sports centre and include it in a multi-purpose, multifaceted faceted church community centre, which we will run and operate. Mm. Uh, cut a long story short, uh, we were given the land, two acres of land on a peppercorn rent of one pound for 350 years. Um, <laughs> and we were given a million pounds by the developer instead of building the sports building, My word. which was invested in building a 2.4 million pound um, centre, which we call the King Centre, which opened 20 years ago this year. Um, and the, the idea was that under the roof of the King Centre, we would do church as we've always done church. We would make it available for the local community and local business to come and use the premises, to hire it, to, to fund the provision of staff and so on. But thirdly, we would start kind of bridge building ministries. We'd encourage mm. people uh, to use their gifts, their hobbies, their interests whether it's in the sports, whether it was in language, in a language school, whether it was arts and craft, whatever it would be, along with childcare and that kind of thing, to, to run those things under the orb of the King Centre mm. as kind of a, a bridge upon which people could step through that into Great. the church. 
So it became a place that became the focal point for the community. Fantastic. So, and yeah. John was the same sort of age as you? John was five years older, yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, and you'd, had you always been in the same church as well? No, John was, uh, came out of Methodism. I oh. mean, he'd, he'd, he had the scars to show for, ah. for the battles that he'd fought. You know, wow. he, he uh, was trained in Methodism and was becoming increasingly unhappy oh. with the theological drift there and uh, came out of that and uh, very bravely. Initially, he was superintending, I think, seven churches down in South Wales in the Methodist circuit, mm. but went from that to uh, pastor a small independent church in Penn in Buckinghamshire and then up to Tynemouth right. to plant a church up there back in the 1970s. Right. So um, uh, John comes from Manchester, uh, uh, so it was a kind of brave move for mm. him to uh, to come out of Methodism. Right. Um, uh, so that was his background, right. but uh, got very influenced by Martin Lloyd Jones and others of that generation. Mm. Really. Did he? Did you and he hear the doctor in London? Um, well, John actually had him come to preach at his church every so often. He came Gracious. to Chesington once. Oh, really? uh, John, being a few years older, probably heard and saw him a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I personally only saw him from a distance, as it were, mm-hmm. or when he came once, as I was a very young man, mm-hmm. to Chesington to preach. So you were both. So he came presumably with an evangelistic fervor. Was that something which he he brought in from the uh, the Methodism which he had seen when he was younger? Yeah, I think. Uh, um, it was certainly that. He came as a very fine preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so we complemented each other. I think, um, I believe the Lord had kind of gifted me with some sort of leadership skills and ability to see something and make it happen. Wow. So uh, I love the Word of God. I love preaching it. Mm. So we did a shared ministry. Um, and it, uh, it really worked because we were good friends. Wow. And um, we were together for 20 years. Now, Trevor, a lot of people would... Imagine the potential having a, a facility like that and the, the opportunity to perhaps serve uh, people in the community as an expression of church life. Uh, based on what you had expected and based on the fact that you were doing something which hadn't been done before, what was it like going through those pioneering years? What was it like doing something which no one had done around friends who were conservative Bible guys did you find everyone was on side? Did you find the congregation with you 100% of the time? What, what, was, what was it like? Um, well, we were four years in the planning and one year in the building of the King Centre. Mm. Uh, and those four years were dealing with some of those issues, both internally with the church, but externally. I think the, the biggest misconception was that somehow we were getting into bed with the local authority and they were going to be calling the shots which was to misunderstand what we'd actually negotiated. Right. We had negotiated uh, a lease uh, which gave us um, basically the freedom to do whatever we wanted in that site without any wow. uh, uh, you know, ownership by the local authority. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were free. We had our own church constitution embedded in the lease. Mm-hmm. We were very clear what we were about. Um, um, but we were also there to serve the community. We were very clear that that's what we wanted to do. We weren't going to get in there and then suddenly change the game plan. Right. And, uh, so th- there was a confidence issue there. The congregation were brilliant because I think um, 
in the preceding five years, we've been really preaching the book of Acts and uh, working our way through that as the gospel goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And kind of part of the, the concept of that is that, you know, every, every local church has its Jerusalem. That's our prime responsibility to get the gospel out into our locality. But we also have a mission responsibility to our nation, our, mm -hmm. our Jerusalem, Samaria, mm -hmm. but to the ends of the earth, to the internationally. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've been working through that and the implications of that. And because we've been looking for land and it hadn't happened and it was going to be astronomical costs, we couldn't afford anyway, we, we'd gone towards this thing of actually, no, we're putting the money into people. So we'd sent a couple to the Philippines, we'd started a schools ministry, We'd taken another person on board on staff as a youth worker, one of the young men from the church, Trevor Pierce, who's now All Souls um, in London. Uh, so we'd gone through this thing of it's all about the gospel, it's all about churches, people, and it's all about investing in the gospel. But um, I think as we'd worked through that, as the congregation had worked through that, and as in God's providence, he brought then this opportunity, which effectively was saying to us, now you've got that right, I'll give you, the, I'll give you a land, some land and I'll give you some money to go with it. It meant in terms of the congregation that they saw that as a kind of generic thing coming out of a mission heart. Mm, so it was a very great. natural expression of, mm. the, of the journey the church had been on. It wasn't something parachuted in. Right. Um, and therefore, I think, and because we, the way we did it was to take it a step at a time. So uh, the congregation, we weren't asking them to commit to the whole deal from day one. We were saying our first thing is to explore this. That means employing some architects. We'll do some proposals and then we'll see where we get to. So we were two years really working through that and taking the church closely with us. Mm. The crunch came when we said, now we've actually got to commit to this or not, so we're going to have a gift day. We need to raise probably a million and a quarter pounds. How big was the congregation at this at time? At that time, the congregation was probably about, uh, probably about 150, uh, 200 congregation, about 150 members. My goodness. And, um, but we had the gift day, and we saw that as really being a decider in terms of if we don't raise significant money we, 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 we don't if we can't afford our half of the bargain there's no way this is going to happen but we had the gift day and the gift day was uh, amounted to over half a million pounds which mm. is back in the 1980s was Great. from a church that was not you know there were no majorly wealthy individuals in the mm. church mm. people were just behind the vision oh, wow. um, but we'd seen tokens all the way along of God's provide mm. provision mm. you know in terms of providing the land in terms of providing the developers contribution which was a million pound towards the cost and even when we completed the building um, then uh, we found that it was if the Lord was still kind of plundering the Egyptians so to speak because we, uh, the construction company, John Molems, who did a great job for us, and we were very upfront with them. They came and said, look, we don't want to spend a lot of time negotiating the end cost with you. If we now, at this point, agree the final cost, we will complete the building for you for that sum. And uh, little did they know that sum they offered was £50,000 less than we budgeted. Wow. So it was as if the Lord was, it was just in it at every step. Gosh, that 
You know, that has never happened in the history of the world. <laughs> I'm sure it has. But it was, it hadn't been done before, which was why the four, it took four years. Mm. But humanly speaking, the director of development, Mark Jilks at Kingston, I didn't know it when he first rang me up, Christian man, who, he was passionate about it. And uh, so he and I worked very closely together, my background being in the construction industry and in project management meant that I ended up project managing as well as pastoring. So, um, so, but we just kind of sensed God's hand upon it. Mm. But I think the most sleepless nights were, is this a distraction from the gospel? I think that that was the the biggest challenge. Um, Sometimes I wake up thinking, you know, where am I leading people here? Is it a distraction? Mm. Um, But then we just kept looking back at the providence of God and the the, the tokens from God on the way to think, no, he wouldn't have led us this far Mm. uh, not to sort of deliver on this. And because the the heartbeat of it was evangelistic, was ministry, was mission, um, then I think that's how that has always been kept at the heart of it. And then other churches began to see similar opportunities. So Uh first five years, we probably had a church a week come and visit to see how it had happened and so on. Mm. But I think there were some in our constituency who were thinking, oh, this is, you know, you're selling out, you're getting into bed with the local authority, Mm. which was to totally misunderstand the actual, what we'd negotiated and what the deal actually was. Yes. Uh, and to this day, we have an excellent um, relationship with the local authority. They come and use the building and pay for their use of it. Um, and uh, the, the building has never been a financial drag upon the church. Oh, what um, a blessing. Yeah. What an, what an endorsement of a vision. Yes. You know, yeah. a, and thrilling for you to be in your 30s with John pushing and seeing doors opening in this way. How exciting to go with the congregation. The interesting yeah. thing was, over the... Um, we had imagined that then there was going to be this great ingathering uh, because of this mm-hmm. locally in the community. Mm-hmm. And whilst the, the congregation you know, has grown, the church is four to five hundred today and so on, the, the, we didn't see people getting converted in the way that we thought. What we actually saw in the first ten years was the continuation of the actual the training aspect. So in that time we had sent and supported financially 10 people into Christian ministry in this country and abroad. Um, so there was this constant throughput of people who God was putting his hand upon to call into paid ministry. Mm. And part of our commitment was that the church would not rescind or lower its commitment to investing in people mm. and investing in ministry. So the King Centre, the cost of that had to happen on top of our regular giving, uh, because we weren't going to pull back on that. Mm. But it's that area that God, um, in his sovereignty, particularly blessed in the next 10 years. It wasn't, we didn't see, sadly, you know, hundreds of people flocking through the doors coming to Christ. We saw hundreds of people flocking through the doors, but as in the culture that we're in, it's hard days for the gospel, but it's mm. days of great opportunity as well. Mm. And um, so that it... it it, that's that's the thing. So twenty years on, we kind of, I think, if you ask people about if we're, is there a kind of an emotional, spiritual heart to Chesington, people would say the King Centre. I think. Wow. And, uh, and I think that one of the, just give you an example, Ben, of the um, a little while ago we did some door to door, and I thought the day of door to door, you know, was actually gone because of all the you know the problems and so on. But the interesting thing was, if we'd previously we'd knocked on the door and said, we're from Chesington Evangelical Church, pretty quickly the door would get 
blocked in our face. Whereas now we're finding people saying, oh, yeah, oh, well, I come there, or my grandchildren come there, okay. oh, yeah, I come there to yeah. the seniors club or whatever. Yeah. They know the building, they've been in the building, they comment upon the very atmosphere that they come into, mm. which is really interesting. Yes. So it's actually given us huge inroads into the community, mm. which is there to be built on, I think, in the coming decade. Mm. Uh, and the community around has changed in the last 20 years. It's much more multi multi-ethnic, multicultural. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, in, in Keller's book on the church, Centre Church, I think it's in that book, he proposes that a church should be the environment, an environment which uh, Christians should be the sorts of people who, when they leave, the community grieves. And I, was, I spoke to a fellow called Simon Gilbo. Does, he, does that name anything? He's no. a missionary fellow. Okay. I only had a minute with him, and I said... Um, uh, my advice to you is listen to John Piper's biographies. What's your advice to me? And he said something I've never forgotten. He said, um, never overestimate what you can do in one year, mm. but never underestimate what you can do in five years. Mm. So we've been planting on, an, on a housing estate in Tower Hamlets for five, six years, and we've seen very little encouragement in terms of the predominantly Muslim congregation hearing the gospel. But we hear things like this. My wife was talking to a uh, a lady who was having trouble on the estate. And this lady said to my wife, no, if you get involved, everyone trusts you. Mm. And we realize, it's interesting, I'm talking to you about London. Yeah. And I think people say, think London, we think Buckingham Palace, Trafalgar Square. We think of these great iconic centers. You immediately have gone to grassroots and you're talking about community, people. It's a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a healthy a healthy preoccupation, a healthy perspective. Mm. And so, yes, so in your role working with FIEC in terms of uh, London director, yes. you're someone who has seen extraordinary things and has also seen the significance of holding to first priorities mm. of continually training, investing yeah. in the people. How, how do you work investing into people personally? I think it's both for me. I'd, I'd like to envision people as to what can be done if we work together. I think the key is... To any ministry, it's got to be relational. Mm. Um, and we often miss that. With, ah. You know, the Lord's ministry was to the band of, you know, the, the apostles. It's very relational. Paul's let he's constantly investing in people. And I think it's that aspect is so vital to ministry. I think often we think, especially in conservative evangelicalism, we talk in terms of ministry as our preaching ministry and so on. But actually, it's, that's only part of it. It's a significant part of it and a key part of it, but it is only part because if you can't relate to people, if you can't invest in people, if you don't want people to excel you, then don't go into ministry, I would say, you know, invest in it. So to I, excel you? Yeah, I, I, want, I want the next generation to do better. Mm. Um, so I have... Um, I was very... Into, I, I had lunch about two years ago with Lyndon Bowering of CARE and... Um, Lyndon's just a few years older than me, and I said, Lyndon, what would you do differently now, you know, 25 years ago, if you'd had the chance to do that you know now? And he immediately said, well, uh, two things. He said, I would have, uh, our care intern scheme, I would have started much earlier, because that investment in 12 youngsters every year, you know, whether in politics, media, charity, that kind of thing, has now borne fruit. I wish I'd done that earlier. But he said, the second thing is I meet with a group of um, leaders of parachurch organisations, some of the younger leaders, and we meet twice a year for 
24 hours and um, I just spend time with them and I'm there to kind of mentor them and love them and, and so on. So they gave me the idea of actually saying, well, I could gather six guys and we maybe not go away for the 24 hours, but they could come to our house for six hours. We could have a meal and uh, we could talk about theological issues. We could pray together. We could understand what's going on in our churches. So I invited six younger guys to do that. This is from when I came into the training role. And um, all six came back and said, yeah, I'd love to. Can I bring my mate along? They, they, and I said, no, because that, the group would then become 12, which is too large. I'll do a separate group for them. So I've now got two groups of six. Um, and we meet three times a year. And it's very precious because... It's just um, opportunity to encourage them, to support them, to help them see what's going on, to perhaps give them a bit of perspective from, from an older guy. Right. Um, but it's all about relationship. It's mm. about, and it gives them also the, the knowledge that they can pick up the phone at any time, but they can also pick up the phone to one another, they're not on mm. their own. Mm. So to create this kind of band of brothers, which comes back to what I want to endeavour to do initially with the... If I see London churches, their leaders, is to sort of, come on, guys, we're in this together. We've got a massive task. We're, and it's not just about us. It's about our other brothers and sisters in evangelical, in different groupings in yeah. London. We yeah. need to be able to work together. There mm. are going to be different levels at which we can work together. Mm. But we've got to be generous in this, and we've got mm. to be gospel-focused mm. in this. And oh. so often our secondary issues have have become primary and have divided us. And we can't afford that luxury. We are a very small minority mm. uh, in, a, in an ocean mm. of people who don't know Christ. Yes. Well, the figures, 2 to 3%. I know it's higher in London with the black churches and so on. But uh, yeah, if you said 5% of the population are Christian of London, I think you'd be pushing it. Oh, and, uh, yeah. um, so there's a massive need. So mm. what we can do is pass the baton on. It's the 2 Timothy 2, isn't it, of um, passing the baton on to the next generation. Yeah. To pass it rather, but it's relational. It's mm. got to be relational. The, I, the thing you wrote on your, uh, the blog when you announced your, when your new position was announced, I thought was striking because you were so unashamed to state the numbers and the facts there are, I think you said there are 8 million people living within the M25 and 7,500 in FIEC churches yeah. and that was the substance of what you were saying yeah. and it's, what was encouraging was of course you weren't moving away from that, you weren't shying from those facts, you weren't taking on <laughs> the perspective of someone who has a title and therefore no. has arrived <laughs> but you were saying we are now we're part of a tiny minority. Yeah, we're minuscule. And we need to... And, 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 but it's encouraging that you rec you're recognising and prioritising the generosity of graciousness yeah. in the centre of that. that yes. is, that's profoundly yeah. significant. So, Trevor, here at Christian Heritage London, we are in the centre of the city of London. Around the corner from here, William Tyndale's New Testaments were burned. Down the road, Newton... John Newton had an, a letter addressed to him from William Wilberforce. In this building, Samuel Wesley, father of John Wesley and Charles Wesley, was curate. Around the corner, the Smithfield martyrs were burned at the stake and John Bunyan died just around the corner. That's just a handful of the many people who have history in these streets. Their stories have encouraged their generations and their stories have encouraged the generations of many who have come after them. 
Is there someone from church history who has been uh, especially uh, encouraging to you or someone who you have found to be an inspiration and a blessing? Well, you mentioned him there, really, as uh, John Newton. Well, it's actually John Newton and William Cooper. Uh, I'm fascinated by these two men because they were poles apart. When you think about it, there's, there's one which is this kind of rugged slave captain, tough life, tough man, and the other which is this um, obviously very fragile, uh, artistic, wonderful poet. It's only the gospel that would put those two together, really, and they ended up living next door to each other, as you probably know, in Olney, in Buckinghamshire, where, where Newton served uh, for many years. So I've always been drawn to those two characters and to that relationship, mm. um, which it just, it, it's, got, it's just rich. I mean, the history here is so rich, as you've just illustrated. You can breathe it, can't you? It's mm. just glorious. Mm. But the lovely thing about those two guys, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, and Newton especially, is his pastoral heart. Um, and the, the, he's, I don't think he was a great preacher, probably, but he, was, he, he loved his people, and he loved the gospel, and he loved uh, helping younger men in the gospel. So even in his 80s, he was doing that. And that kind of breathes really through his hymns especially. Mm. And it was remarkable. They were like the kind of Getty town end of their day, I think. Mm. They, were t- oh, they were turning out a song a week for wow. the prayer meeting Gracious in Olney, for these, these villagers in this little Buckinghamshire town. And those hymns, some of them, I mean, I think there's something like, well, several thousand they wrote anyway. Mm. But some of them are still with us today, and they're just wonderful. Mm. You know, sometimes a light surprises a Christian while he prays. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Mm. Um, what various hindrances we meet mm-hmm. uh, when coming before the mercy seat, as well as the famous, you know, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Uh, what's that one? I don't remember um, that one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, the one I love most of all, actually, of Newton's, is that it, it's, it's largely gone out of use. I ask the Lord that I might grow. And you know no. that one. So I've actually printed off... Uh, earlier today in, in advance of this, where it's actually um, a hymn where he's kind of praying as, I guess all Christians should pray at one time or another, he's asking the Lord that he should grow as a Christian. Mm. Uh, and this is how it goes. This is the story. He said, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favoured hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part.' Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my goods, and laid me low. There's a sailor, isn't it? Mm. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answered prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free, and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that you may seek your all 
in me. Wow. So that's just superb, isn't Extraordinary. it? Extraordinary. And as a hymn, you'd have to sing it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a rich, rich... I mean, Cooper was the great poet, of course, and, and, but Newton knew people, and he was earthed in that. And uh, uh, so this rare combination of, of these two, two guys living next door to each other and uh, Cooper's great dependency upon Newton. Uh, so I'm always mm. fascinated by that and mm. uh, by the story and uh, it's just by, by God's grace. And we've come back, you know, again... We tend to think these are oh these are days of revival and you know the spe- but actually the numbers weren't that different and these these right. men were just faithful. Mm. Um, obviously, I mean they've had, they've stood the test of time and still speak to us today, which is the great thing about church history. And yes, which is you know so the danger is we lose these men, which I love what you're doing because you know we can lose this and we can lose some of the rich heritage of hymns as well. There, mm. there are not good old hymns and bad new ones. It's not. They're just good hymns, old and new. Mm. But the danger mm. is we can lose some of this rich variety and depth um, that these these men experienced yes. through, as, as Newton put it, through his trials mm. and through the brokenness of life. And through. You know, both those men knew great brokenness. And yes. I think that's... that's um, through many dangers. Toils and snares. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. I, I, striking that... When Wilberforce was going through that dark night of the soul, yeah. where he was, he couldn't get equilibrium in his soul. He was, yeah. he couldn't find how to get balance in his conscience and so on. It was to Newton that he went. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Newton was a man who believed the doctrines of grace, mm. but was also known to be gracious. Yes, yeah. And I think that's something which um, is an emphasis. They always go hand in hand. I'm afraid. Yes, that's the that's <laughs> the sad thing. We do sometimes. Of course, there's that fascinating challenge when we pray wonderful things and uh, we, we thank you, Lord, that. Sometimes we need to stop and think, what is it for which we are thanking? Have we really understood it before we just rattle through the words? The doctrines of grace should produce a sweetness. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the example which Newton brings. And yeah. Perhaps one of the greatest examples of graciousness in a man who believed the doctrines of grace in church history. But, of course, not just a man who sat there quietly, but a man who mm. influences history. Yeah. No Newton, yeah. no Wilberforce, yes. quite possibly. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. film recently was, um, a few years back now, Amazing Grace. Oh, terrible, terrible depiction <laughs> of Newton. Yes. Because just he was not that. You know, he, right. it was kind of, he was still plagued with doubts and That's plagued right. with remorse and so on. It's That's just right. total misrepresentation. Yeah. Albert Finney is a great actor, but he did a lousy job with Newton. Yeah, it was poor research, wasn't it? Yeah, very poor. Uh, but it, yeah, he was a bitter. In that, but it was yeah. filmed around the corner from here. But, was uh, it? Yeah. But it was, uh, yes, it was, it, it, all the evidence tells us he was different to that. We love to take people to uh, St. Mary Woolnoth on, on, on walks. And um, I was in there recently with a group of, um, of people. It's fascinating, when you finish telling them the stories of Wilberforce and Newton, I like to say, right, let's go now to the next stop. <laughs> And often they they are it's like they're nailed to the floor. Yeah. It so goes through them. But mm-hmm. recently I was there with a group, and uh, as I was saying, let's go. There was one person still sitting there, and uh, I thought, why is she still there? And then I saw she was the one black girl in the group. Mm-hmm. And you think, my goodness, this changed the world. These people mm-hmm. changed the world. Mm-hmm. They were black people were considered semi-human, mm-hmm. and then Wilberforce mm-hmm. slave 
and, and you think, my goodness, yeah. the, 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 the extraordinary things that gospel has done uh, in history. Yes. Mm. Trevor, it's been a real treat to have this time with you. So thank you so much for your time. And we're Not at all. hoping for you and hoping to work with you in your magnificent new role of London director and hoping that you are able to bless the, and encourage the London pastors in that. Well, thank you, Ben. I'm looking forward to that yeah. and working together. Thank Excellent. you. Bless you, sir.